0: Uncover from CBC Podcasts is your source for exceptional storytelling and groundbreaking journalism. Unveil the shocking secrets of one of Canada's most prolific fashion moguls. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. And dive into the unsolved murders of two Canadian billionaires. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theory. It's got all the ingredients, none of the answers. With new episodes released weekly, you'll hear the very best in award winning true crime. Listen to Uncover wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC podcast.
0: The door to my mom's apartment is heavy. You have to kind of twist the top lock just the right way, and the bottom lock, and then kind of. Push with your shoulder. The apartment's sold a few months ago, and so I have a couple of weeks to pack up all my mom's things and, um, and move out.
1: When Anderson Cooper's mother Gloria Vanderbilt, died in 2019, he did what many grieving family members do he ventured into her home to sort through her belongings he was still deeply processing the loss and as he went through her things he began to record himself and his reactions those recordings were the foundation for a remarkable podcast about grief and what we don't talk about it's called "All There Is it features guests including Stephen Colbert, Molly Shannon, the artist Laurie Anderson and. US President Joe Biden and in many ways Anderson cooper is an ideal host for a discussion like this he's an award-winning journalist with cnn he's also lived a life filled with loss his father died when he was 10 when anderson was 21 his brother carter died by suicide a new season of the podcast has just begun and anderson cooper joins us from new york city anderson good morning good morning thanks for uh, having me thanks for doing this and and for talking to us why did you do that why did you record yourself when you were going through your mom's things
0: It's something I tend to do. I read every year this book, Men's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's my favorite book. And um, he talks about he was in a concentration camp. And one of the ways he survived was by sort of narrating horrible experiences in his head to himself in a sort of clinical way, almost as if he was observing himself doing these activities. And not to compare my situation at all to his, but it's something that I've always done. Usually I write stuff down to kind of help me understand things I'm going through. Um, But I started record making these voice recordings. I'm not even sure exactly why voice recordings, but I didn't plan on it being a podcast. But then the, the loneliness of grief, uh, which I think anybody out there who has gone through it or is going through it can certainly understand. I, I just felt it was such a strange thing to feel so lonely in this, and this experience, which is an experience which everybody on the planet will go through at one time or another in their life. We will all grieve the law. We will all lose people we love. And the loneliness of it, it's strange to have this universal experience, and yet we, we don't talk about it enough, and, and one feels so alone in it.
1: I mean, this is something that you've gone through, as I mentioned, over the course of, of, of periods of your life, when your father, your brother... Your mother have all died. Plus, the the grief and the, and the loss that you have seen as a correspondent in some pretty terrible stories. In not processing that, in not talking about it, because to your point, we don't speak about this. Um, what did you do? What what happened when you didn't and you weren't able to speak about this openly?
0: You know, I uh, I've spent my life not speaking about this. I mean, I I've I realized decades ago what I was doing in terms of. You know, I, I started going to wars when I was very young, in my early twenties, and it became clear to me why I was drawn to that. And I realized, you know, I was seeking out loss I, because I was unable to talk about it myself. I was unable to express it, but I, I refused to allow myself to feel it. I, um, I didn't realize at the time. I thought I had grieved, but it's only recently that I really have discovered that I never grieved and that I've just buried all this stuff and. It's why I've started doing a second season of the podcast, because I need to figure out how to grieve. It's not something I've ever actually done. And by not doing it, by not talking about it, not allowing myself to go through it, I've lived a very kind of muted life. I've lived in between the highs and lows. So while I haven't felt great depths of despair, which is something I haven't allowed myself to feel, I also haven't felt, allowed myself to feel great levels of joy. And, and I, that's an intolerable situation.
1: As you began to cast around for people to talk to, did you realize early on that there were other people who had, had experienced what you had experienced, but were also very keen to try to figure out how to surface some of that grief, how to confront some of that grief?
0: You know, I, I mean, the idea of talking to other people about grief is not anything I had ever considered before. I, I have, I rarely talk to other people, um, I mean, I interview people all the time, but yeah. I I rarely, I really seek other people's advice in for for myself. I I tend to think about I just mull over things and and go over things in my own head, my own head. And I've done that really since I was a child. I've never really sought out or expressed myself to other people around me uh, when I was going through things, much to my detriment. Um, this is really not a model for anyone to follow. But I, I you know, I actually after my mom died, I happened to be doing an interview with Stephen Colbert about a month or so after my mom died. And it was an interview completely on just about his television show in in preparation for it. I'd read a couple of interviews and in one interview, he had mentioned the loss of his father and two of his brothers who were Mm -hmm. killed in a plane crash when he was 10 years old. And something he had said about it so struck me that I felt compelled to ask him about it during the interview.
1: Let me, let me play what you asked him sure. because this is, I've watched this and it's an unbelievable moment. I've seen it a, a dozen times. Um, and your question, but also his response is incredible. Yeah. So let me play what you asked Stephen Colbert on C Sure.
0: You told an interviewer that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. You went on to say what punishments of God are not gifts. Do you really believe that? Yes. It's a gift to exist, and with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. But if you are grateful for your life, then you have to be grateful for all of it. And so at a young age, I suffered something so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with friends, or with my wife, or with my children, is that I have some understanding that everybody is suffering. and however imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and connect with them and to love them in a deep way that makes you grateful for the fact that you have suffered so that you can know that about other people.
1: Do you understand where he's coming from? That's a a remarkable answer for somebody to give.
0: He's extraordinary. I mean, Stephen speaks about grief in a way that nobody else I've ever met does. And um, I I just find him extraordinary. And And the interview that we ended up doing three years later on the podcast is, I mean, is one of the most incredible interviews and I had nothing to do with it. It's just, it's all Stephen, but I I do understand what he's talking about. I did not understand when I asked that question, I was so blown away by this idea of coming to a place of gratitude for grief. And this idea, he'd also quoted J.R. Tolkien, who wrote uh, in a letter, what punishments of God are not gifts. And I, I find that idea, I just found it mind blowing and I thought about it ever since you and know, I did that interview. And I, I do, I, 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 am not saying I'm there yet, or, you know, it's very hard to say you're grateful for the grief that you are feeling and the losses that you have experienced. I mean, I certainly wish I had not experienced these losses in so many ways. And yet They have made me the person that I am, and they have enabled me to understand other people in a way I never would have before and to connect with people in a far more meaningful way than I ever would have been able to before. And it's made me a better person. It's made me more human. And as Stephen will say, you know, if the goal is to be the most human you can be, then grief is a part of that.
1: One of the most extraordinary things about that conversation is that it's two men being really vulnerable and open. And, and you've said in the podcast and elsewhere, I mean, that, that for a while you chose not to be vulnerable because by that, the very definition, I mean, you're being open. What does that word mean to you now, that idea of vulnerability? Um,
0: it's a scary word and it's not something I've, you know, I, I did what a lot of children do who experience a loss early on. Again, I didn't, really consciously know I was doing this, but I had a revelation quite recently that I this is what I did. But essentially, my dad died when I was 10 years old. And I, I cried the night he died. And I very quickly just took all of that fear and terror and sadness and heartbreak and anger, um, and I just buried it very deep inside myself. And when my brother died by suicide 10 years later, I buried it down deeper still. And so being vulnerable was not something I allowed myself to be for a very long time. I didn't talk about my dad. I didn't talk about my brother with other people. I think like a lot of guys, I just felt I need, like, it's so overwhelming. This is going to overwhelm me, and I need to move forward, and I need to just push through this. And that's exactly what I did, and I've done that for I mean, I'm 56. I've done that for, you know, the, my dad died when I was 10. So for 46 years of my life and it's, you know, I mean, I've certainly gone to therapy over the years, over the decades and talked about issues and talked about things, but I've never addressed, I've never looked at or allowed myself to kind of look at the sadness of that little kid. And I realize I've been carrying that little kid around. It is the lens through which I see pretty much everything.
1: When you do that, when you when you are vulnerable, I mean, you can hear it in this podcast. Much of the podcast is you trying to hold it together and breaking yeah, apart, to, uh, and, yeah. and you're really open about that. I mean, you could clean it all up and do it again, but that's not the point of yeah. it in some ways.
0: Yeah, listen. I mean, honestly. Even sitting here talking to you, I find this very hard to talk about. I right. mean, my voice cracks, and um, I have to take weird pauses in order not to, you know. I, it it's it is a it is a very strange territory for me, and it has happened to me over the decades in very difficult circumstances. I was in, in you know. Hurricane Katrina in very emotional circumstances where, uh, you know, I was in a place where a lot of people had died and their bodies were in the streets and I was confronting people. And, you know, there have been moments in my career where I've not been able to speak on camera and had to sort of compose myself. But that's very, you know, those come very infrequently, but they certainly now are much more frequent, I, much to my horror but uh, to your horror, you know. Well, horror is maybe a little bit. But stronger. I know, I know yeah, you embar- embar- embarrassment. Uh, you know, I, I'm amazed that I'm 56 years old, and I, you know, my voice cracks when I when I speak about these things. I lost my best friend. Lost my sister. A Métis woman is strangled at her front door in the spring of 2002.
1: It was a tough one right from the get-go.
0: And there's a single suspect.
1: And I said, why is this man still walking free? He was just a pawn man and a manipulator.
0: I'm David Ritten, and this is The Next Call, The Case of Terry Dauphiny. Available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your
1: podcasts. We often think that this shared experience of grief is something that we're, we're the only ones who are living through. We're the only ones who are immersed in it. What have you learned about why it is that we keep it to ourselves?
0: I think it's the pain. It's the fear of being overwhelmed. I, I think certainly anybody who did what I did as a child, which is, you know, it's a rational response to to horrific to to a horrific event. You know, my dad for me was was everything. Um, he was the most stable parent. He was, you know, the person I talked to. Um, I didn't really know my mom well. She was working a lot. She was an extraordinary person, but. You know, we didn't get to know each other until after my dad died, really, because my dad was such a, a present father. I think in some ways it can be a rational response to a very scary situation. It propelled me forward. It gave me fuel to work around the clock for decades. And it gave me fuel to be able to drop everything and get on a plane and fly somewhere and cover extraordinary events around the world and take risks that most people aren't willing to take and go places, you know, that were very dangerous. And it, it it was in some ways fuel for the entire career and life that I've had, but the underlying thing doesn't go away. You know, you can push it all down, but grief, it doesn't disappear. It just, it may lay dormant for a long time, but at some point you have to turn and face it. And you know, the sooner the better, I think.
1: You did this really publicly in the first season of this podcast, and the the response was extraordinary. Um, You asked for messages from listeners. You wanted to hear how what you had talked about had impacted them, but also of their own experiences and stories of loss and grief and how they processed it. How would you describe what you heard back from people?
0: I set up a voicemail for people to call just in the last episode, Mm -hmm. and and it was specifically, the question was, I wasn't, I want you to tell me how great this podcast was. It's if you had something that you've learned that you think might help other people and you want to leave a message. And I only had time for the last episode. The last episode of the first season was pretty much composed of these messages I selected from, I only had time to listen to about 200 of them before I had to write and produce the, the final episode. Um, but there was more than 46 hours of voicemails I hadn't listened to. And, and I didn't plan on doing a second season because the first the experience of doing the first season, um, while I loved the response from people, uh, it was overwhelming to me. I had never really addressed any of this stuff, and I needed a break. Mm. Um, but I felt guilty and I felt bad that I hadn't listened to all the voicemails. So several months ago, I sat down and uh, started listening. And I listened to all 46 hours of people's messages, and it was—I mean, it was among the most extraordinary experiences of of my life. Tell me more Just about that. What, what was that like? You know, I have a bunch of different jobs, so. I would listen wherever I could, but it was as if, you know, you have more than a thousand people telling you the most intimate heart wrenching experiences of their life and they're whispering it into your ear. And yeah, I mean, it was overwhelming, but I'm so privileged and honored to, to have these people calling in and to listen to, to them and to learn the names of their loved ones who had died. And um, and what they had learned, and 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 it was extraordinarily helpful. And so it made me—I had stopped going through the boxes of my my mom's stuff and my dad's stuff and my brother's stuff because it had just been overwhelming, and I needed a break. You know, I thought it was going to be a couple days break, and then it turned into weeks, and then months, and then basically a year had gone by, and I hadn't gone through these boxes. But listening to people's voicemails, it motivated me to start going through the boxes again. And literally, the first box I went down, I opened up turned out to be a box of my dad's papers and the first like file in the box that i opened up had an essay that he wrote 40 years ago that i'd never heard of or never seen i don't think it was published anywhere my dad was a writer Mm -hmm. uh and the title was the importance of grieving and in it he wrote about what happens to kids who don't grieve a loss in childhood
1: it's incredible and yeah
0: yeah it was um uh yeah it was as if he was writing it to me. And um, and and part of me wonders if he was because he, he my, my dad had a heart, had had, <clears throat> excuse me, a heart attack before his father had died at 50. I think my dad had a sister who died at 38. He was coming on 50. And I think he knew he might not make it to see us into adulthood. Um, so I th- I do view it as sort of a message from him.
1: It's incredible to think of the impact that that the work that you've had has done. Um, One of the people who is listening, who has heard some of what you've done um, that you went to talk to was the U.S. President, Joe Biden. You go to the White House not to talk about politics or anything else, um, but to talk about grief because... Joe Biden's wife and daughter were killed in a car crash in 1972. His son, Beau, died in in 2015. And he has lived very publicly um, in some ways and in other ways not in the face of that grief. I want to play a little bit of that conversation that you had with with Joe Biden. Have a listen.
0: In your book, your last book, on the back page was a a, a beautiful photo of Beau when he was eight or nine. And he's turning and he's waving to the camera. And you said somewhere that that's the age you always see him in your mind's eye. And I'm wondering, is that still true?
1: Uh, yeah, it is. He, uh, he had a smile on his face, just waving. He's walking into the garden. And uh, look, um, Bo and Hunt, they finish each other's sentences. They are closest they could possibly be. And I think the loss of Bo was a profound, profound impact on Hunter. Why did you want to talk to Joe Biden? I'd heard him
0: talk about grief. I'd, I'd done an interview with him once before where I asked him one question related to grief. And I looked up presidents who have experienced grief. And the number of U.S. presidents who lost children is actually extraordinarily high. It's many, I think it's as many as 18 American presidents lost kids. John F. Kennedy's had a baby who only lived 39 hours. You know, George H.W. Bush lost a daughter to leukemia in 1953, Ronald Reagan. And none of them talked about it while they were in office or very rarely talked about it. And I just thought, wouldn't it be incredible to have a a sitting president, not talking about politics or, or, you know, current events, but actually talking about something which is so deeply fundamental to who this person is, And to kind of hear from them how they deal with it, how they've lived with it. I've read everything Joe Biden has said about grief and loss. And he, you know, in this format, they'd set it up as a traditional interview. They'd set it up with two chairs facing each other in the library of the residence of the White House. And when I walked in the room, that's how it was set up. And I asked, it was a very formal setup, Mm -hmm. and I asked them to bring in a table and to move so that we would actually be sitting face to face uh, across the table from each other, very close, and we could lean forward and put our elbows on the table. I sense that would make a better conversation. And it was, to to hear him speaking in this format, it was just so deeply personal. He said things that he's never said before. You know, it, it, it just stuns me to hear President of the United States willing to open himself up in that way on this, this this most tender of subjects, you know, I think he was reluctant to do it early on in his life when he experienced loss, when his wife and and, and uh, daughter were killed. But what he found was everywhere he went, people who knew of the loss he'd experienced were reaching out to him, wanting something from him, wanting him to connect with them on that most deepest of levels. And that's the thing I found in doing this podcast, which has been so extraordinary. Which is, you know, you're on, if I look, I've worked on television for, I don't know, 30 something years. And so, you know, people recognize me, a lot of people come up on the street and mm. want a selfie, whatever, and I'm happy to do that. But the kind of connections that I have had in interactions I've had with people since doing this podcast is the most real connections. It's people coming up to me in airports and on the street, and it's not, can I have a selfie? It's my daughter died, and this was her name and want you to know about her. Um, And so it is, they they are lovely. They are are deeply meaningful uh, connections. And I think people are so, so need and want that connection in this most tender of of places, in this most broken of places.
1: Just finally for you, um, you talked earlier about kind of living sort of a muted life because of what you had pressed down somewhere into you that you didn't let come up. And in the podcast, you say, in trying to bury my own sadness, I have buried my ability to feel joy. This is hard work in talking about this. Um, but has has doing something like this given you that ability to feel joy?
0: It, it actually has. I mean, amazing. And look, I'm like in the early days of my own sort of dealing with this. But um, I do notice already a change in my ability to laugh. Around my kids, and you know, having children is the greatest. You know, no matter what you may be feeling, you can't help but just feel incredible when you're around them, and and it is a great motivator to address all these things. I mean, that's I wouldn't be addressing these things if it wasn't for having kids. My mom, who lived a life of tremendous losses, but also you know, had a larger was larger than life always had this, sort of this sadness behind her eyes that I could, that based on childhood losses that, that she'd had a very traumatic childhood and um, in many different ways. Yeah. And and I don't want my kids to see, when they look in my eyes, to see anything other than my complete adoration of them. I want them to feel very safe with me. And so I, you know, that idea of them seeing any kind of sadness behind my eyes, I don't want to live that kind of a life. And so, yeah, I already see a shift. I'm I'm already feel better and, and feeling more joy. And that's, it's a lovely thing. And I think that's only going to, going to increase.
1: This project, I mean, again, it's hard work um, and it means a lot to you, but it's been a gift, I think, to a lot of people as well. And I, I just, I'm really glad to have the chance to talk to you about it. And I look forward to what other stories come out in, in the later episodes, but um, it really is quite something. Anderson, thank you very much.
0: Well, I really appreciate it. It, it is something I'm, I care a lot about. And I hope that anybody listening who has experienced grief or is feeling it now, whether they listen to this podcast or something else, you know, it, it doesn't go away. And it's so important to, to reach out to others. If you are experiencing this feeling of loneliness, if you're experiencing this grief, to, to find one or two other people to talk to, or something to listen to that, that you can commune with and, and voice what you have been holding inside.
1: Thanks for doing this and take care of yourself. Thanks so much. Anderson Cooper is the host of Anderson Cooper 360 on CNN and the second season of his podcast, All There Is, is out now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca
0: slash podcasts.